Welcome to the Inner Green Deal podcast. Is sustainability realistic? In this final episode of this first podcast season, my colleague Liana asked Fernando Garcia about the state of our planet and whether sustainability is a realistic focus. Should we hold on to a belief that we can live in a sustainable way with 8 billion people on this planet? Or should we start thinking about the possibility that this may not be realistic and start reflecting on what is truly worth saving, what we need to let go of, and what we need to come to terms with? Fernando is a former director of health and well-being at the European Commission. While he's not a scientist, he's one of the most informed citizens I know. Since he retired two years ago, he has been attending and facilitating retreats where he explores how we relate to nature. In this podcast, he raised some tough questions, but also offers answers that not only present a more realistic future, but also one that is more enjoyable and in connection with ourselves and with nature. And as I just mentioned, this is the final episode of our first podcast season. We look forward to continuing this journey together. For the next season, we will open up the podcast platform to new facilitators and guests. If you want to join our podcast team or be an occasional contributor, send us a message using the contact details in the podcast description. We'd love to hear from you. Equally, as we're all volunteers, we would welcome financial donations to cover the costs and support the ongoing functioning of our podcast. Anyhow, we really love making this first podcast season and look forward to continue the journey together. For now, enjoy this special episode with Fernando Garcia. We are Leon Steven and Jeroen Jans, and thank you for joining the Inner Green Deal podcast. So welcome, Fernando. You have been deeply committed to environmental work for more than 10 years now. And especially to the work of Jim Bendel, Deep Adaptation, to the Transition Network, and also to the work of Joanna Macy. So I'm curious, how did this commitment all come about? Well, I've always been very fond of nature. I was born in a small village in, in northern Spain. But basically, the big paradigm shift happened to me in 2009, when I read an article in the New York Times with the title, The End is Near. And of course, that was a compelling title, very <laughs> catchy. And what was inside this article was a description of the Transition Towns movement, which had started a couple of years before by Rob Hopkins. And it was basically a description of what was that about. I read the article with lots of interest and immediately got... Uh, shocked by some of the things that Rob Hopkins was saying there. And I bought the book, which was published at the time, the Transition uh, Handbook. And I went for a training with the Transition people back in 2010. The contention there was that uh, our society is based on very fragile foundations and climate change is a real threat. Mm. And peak oil was the other threat. So those foundations are very shaky. And uh, from there, you know, I mean, one of the immediate uh, implications of that is that I went vegetarian immediately and I started revising my, my own behaviors. 
and then and then I moved on. You know, uh, there was a period when I was I became director for a sort of a corporate social responsibility in the European Commission, the internal social corporate responsibility, and and I was pushing for the EMAS agenda, the environmental impact of the Commission as an institution. Uh, and then in 2018, which was a very important year in my life, I, I spent one week in, in the mountains with a guide. It was very tough. And I also accompanied my mother in her dying process and uh, retired. And since then, I've been in, a, in, a, in quite a journey, I have to say. Mm. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Um, and, and how would you describe your role nowadays in all of that? Um, do you see yourself as an activist or do you have any other description for your role? I find it difficult to describe myself. Probably the closest thing is, is post-activist, as uh, <laughs> Bayo Hakomolafe calls it. It's a very complex, it's a very complex uh, concept. Uh, if I take the um, the uh, model of the transition towns and the, and the transition handbook, uh, is a model which is divided in three areas, you know, the head, the heart, and the hands. My role in the area of the head is I'm waking up at the reality of this planet, and I'm learning a lot, spending a lot of time reading about that. I'm a citizen, I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, but I spend a lot of time reading and listening to podcasts and watching and reading articles and reports. And I'm sharing that. So in, in terms of my head, mm. this is what I'm doing, capturing information, understanding it, and, and sharing it. In terms of the heart, I'm trying, because of the emotional impact of that, I'm trying to really reconnect with my body and with my spirit. And the work that reconnects with Joanna Macy is, is important. I'm doing some work with spirituality. I'm doing work with death. Uh, I've been in a couple of retreats, and now I'm going to start a program to become a death doula, you know, somebody who accompanies dying people. And in terms of my hands, uh, I'm a facilitator. I'm, 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 it's, it's quite a transformation because I used to be a speaker and, and it's a completely different profession. So I'm trying to, to transform myself into a facilitator and a guide. I'm, I'm part of the facilitators in deep adaptation. I, I didn't mention that, but maybe we can talk later about that. Um, I'm doing training. I'm a trainer. I'm, I'm training. I'm, I'm running an online course in the Spanish Transition Network. Uh, I'm quite an activist uh, in veganism. I've been a vegan for five years, and I'm quite quite a bore talking about veganism. And basically, I'm learning sobriety. I'm learning to to be more austere, and that's that's difficult. So, in a in a nutshell, you know. Uh, I'm doing something in the area of the to-do list, you know, in the outer path, as Paul Chefulka calls it. But mostly I'm very much in the to-be list, you know, in, in working on who I am in the middle of this predicament. You just mentioned your incredible interest in reading about science. So I know that you say climate collapse is unavoidable. So how does science actually support this thesis? Can you say a little bit more about this? Hmm. Thank you, Leanne. Yeah, indeed, I, I would like to, to stress again that I'm not a scientist. I, am, I consider myself a well-informed citizen, somebody who, who reads 
the articles that you find in newspapers about the environment and reads also the reports which are mentioned in these articles and, 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 and searches and, and looks at uh, podcasts, etc., etc. So I'm well informed, I think. As well informed as one can be with something as complex as, mm. as, as, as climate science, you know. So that, that's, that's... But I've come to this belief uh, and I'm not alone, you know. I was looking the other day a statistic from the French Institute, the EFOP. Uh, uh, we asked who asked 5,000 people in France, Italy, Germany, UK, and US whether they think that uh, collapse in the coming years is likely. And I was surprised to notice that 70% of Italians said yes, 65% of French, 52% of, of uh, Americans, and only 39% of Germans. Who knows why? But I mean, I'm not alone in, in this belief. Uh, and that's the first reason. The second reason is, you know, uh, in, the, in this universe, everything has a beginning and an end. You know, we, I know that I'm going to die. I, I, and, and, and we should all know that we are going to die. And I know that all societies, all civilizations up until now have collapsed have disappeared you know the roman empire the mayas the aztecs they all have disappeared and there is a lot of research they are tainter globe uh, diamond you know and some of them say that normally normally they tend to last 200 250 years and and then and then they collapse so and and it's 250 years since the industrial revolution so maybe maybe it's just <laughs> chance but anyway what when i when i as i say i read quite a lot about these things. And I came with this model, I don't remember where, where, where it looks at the seven spheres of what is going on in the planet. And when you put all, the, all of them together, because it's not only climate change, it's, it's, it's all over the place. So climate change is linked to what is happening in the first sphere, which is atmosphere, you know, the greenhouse gases. And as you know, the most important one is CO2, where we have concentrations of around 415 parts per million, which is a lot, which is something uh, unseen over the last <laughs> millennia, you know. And of course, this is what is causing uh, global warming. And, and as you know, this CO2 stays in the atmosphere for years, decades, even hundreds of years. So even if we stop today, this will continue having an effect. The problem is that it's not only CO2, it's also methane, and that is more controversial, but uh, there is methane emissions growing in, in the Arctic by the melting of the permafrost, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And methane is a very nasty greenhouse uh, gas, uh, and the concentrations that we could reach in the atmosphere would be completely unbearable. So I'll stop with the atmosphere there because it's already gloomy enough. Second, biosphere. I mean, we are in the sixth mass extinction in this planet. And, and it's not me who's saying it. More and more people are saying it. I'll give you only one figure, which comes from the Academy of Natural Sciences in the US. When they look at the biomass of mammals on the planet, you know, when they, they see, oh, well, let's look at the mammals on this planet, they realize that 36% of, of the whole biomass is humans already, the, the almost 8 billion of us. 60% is cattle is cows, pigs, sheep, etc., etc., And just, and I want to stress, just 4% is wild animals. So 4% includes all the whales, all the elephants, all the rhinos, all the orangutans, all the tigers, etc. Et Only 4%. We've destroyed their habitats. So biosphere, and not to talk about insects, 
where some people say that the the, 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 the extinction is up to 60% in some cases, not to talk about, you know, the birds, you know, if, if, the, if, the, if the insects go. The birds is funny because there was this statistic that I loved. We have three more, three times more chicken than all the rest of the birds in the planet. So that's for biosphere. The third one would be, let's take, for instance, cryosphere, the world of the, of the ice. It's melting, simply. It's melting. I mean, the, the, the ice surface in the Arctic has gone, has been reduced, I, I don't know, it's something like half or, 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 or two-thirds over the last 40 years with the impact that it has in terms of the loss of the albedo effect. You know, it's no longer white and therefore it doesn't reflect light. I mean, the I mean, is is the the effect that it can have on the on the Gulf Stream, the effect that it's going to have on the uh, sea level rise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's massive and it's happening also in glaciers. You know, the Himalayas are going to lose the glacier, which which provides water for one billion people. Massive, massive problem with the melting of the ice in the in the planet. Fourth, hydrosphere. What is happening with water in this planet? Look at the oceans warming warming like crazy. I mean, most of the heat has been has been stored by the oceans. And that's why the land has uh, warmed less than it has. And it's one, one degree, which is quite a lot. You see what is happening already with one degrees in terms of wildfires and, and storms and hurricanes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Plus, the ocean is acidified. You know, when you, when you mix CO2 with water, that gives carbonic acid, which is destroying uh, the, the marine life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So let's not, not to talk about rivers, uh, which are polluted, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the hydrosphere. Fifth, the lithosphere, you know, what happens with the minerals in this planet? You know, the minerals are, are, are we are reaching peak. I mean, an important mineral is the fossil fuels, you know, fossil fuels, you know, oil, coal, gas. Uh, they are not depleted, but they are reaching a, a, a point where the energy invested and the energy returned is no longer as interesting as it was many years ago. So it will come a point where it would be better to leave these these uh, minerals in the in the in the land. Same happens with very important minerals and metals like lithium, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The depletion is all over the place. Apparently, uranium is also uranium, where some people think will will continue running the the, the power plant, the nuclear power plant is 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 not in, infinite. So there is an issue. And of course, the destruction of the habitats linked to, to mining. I mean, think of the tar sands in, in Canada, you know, these these wonderful forests destroyed simply mm. to, to to get this oil. Sixth is the pedosphere, and that is very worrying, which is the soil. The soil where we grow our vegetables is being destroyed massively, you know, because of erosion, because of floods, because of etc., uh, etc. Et so the soil is losing very gradually the capacity to, to, to grow things, also because of the type of uh, agriculture that you, we've run over the last uh, few years with fertilizers, etc., etc. The soil is going, is going very poor. And the, fifth, and the seventh one is the anthroposphere, you know, us. 7.5 billion, according to the UN, going to 10 billion with a level of inequality which has never been seen 
in the history of humanity where a few 0.1% hold 40% of the wealth in the planet, you know, with uh, massive migrations, uh, which are foreseen by the Red Cross and the UN, they are talking about 200 million climate refugees by 2050, with, uh, you know, and, and with what happens with the anthroposphere, I was, I was thinking the other day of, of what uh, Yuval Harari, the, the Israeli historian said, you know, humanity has always been obsessed by three things, you know, which, uh, which are famine, uh, plagues, and uh, violence. And yeah, a couple of years ago, you thought, yeah, we are, we are good with that. You know, famine is coming back and might come back even to, uh, to Europe. The, the yields uh, and the productivity of cereals and rice, et cetera, et cetera, is going down very quickly. Plagues, I don't know whether you further think, which is called covid and it might be the beginning of a series of pandemics and violence. I see it growing in the, in the world. And so those are the seven spheres. Okay. Let me finish with one thing. I was reading the other day a, a fantastic, a, an eco-philosopher whose name is uh, John Foster, uh, who uh, was writing the title of the book is After Sustainability. And basically he says, sustainability is denial. So what the people who believe in green growth and sustainability uh, claim, they are keeping themselves busy and they don't go beyond their business to see really, really what is it to be done with, with, with what I just uh, mm. described. Mm. So thank you for sharing your insights and uh, your knowledge. And I certainly have to take a deep breath now. Um, yeah. It's uh, quite challenging what you say. Um, and at the same time, if that all is true, what you have said, what do we need to learn now? I mean, what kind of internal work needs to be done to otherwise relate to the effects of an impending breakdown? Well, uh, again, is my take. And again, I would like to clarify that what I said about the price agreement is my understanding. I mean, mm. I'm not a scientist. Maybe I'm, mm. I got it totally wrong. And I would be very, very, very happy because I'm a parent with two children to be contradicted. And Fernando, you're wrong. You know, so I could be the first <laughs> one to be very happy to be contradicted. But so that said, what do we need? What can we do with that? You know, uh, when you confront such a brutal reality, you're already ahead of the curve because the first thing that we need to do is to wake up mm. that's the really first thing and it's difficult it's difficult i mean waking up really looking into these realities up front you know uh, calls for a lot of courage because basically when you confront these brutal facts what comes out is fear sorrow helplessness anger these are the, the, the natural and healthy emotions that we feel when we confront these facts. You know, I, I've, been, I've been attending retreats in, in Plan Village, which is a, a Zen Buddhist monastery in southern France, where Tishnatan uh, has been up until recently. And Tishnatan said something which, which I, I, I really loved, you know, when, when confronting the reality, the first thing we need to do is to hear inside ourselves the earth crying. That's the first thing we need to do. And spend some time there. 
So waking up is the first thing. And it's difficult and delicate because when you see this reality, very often you go into what I call, and I, I, I saw the other day that somebody else calls it, and so I didn't invent it, what I call pre-traumatic pre stress disorder, not post-traumatic. So you have, you have a, a trauma by thinking of what is coming, you know. But I also read, and I was happy to read that, that very often patients uh, who suffer post-traumatic stress disorder very often also have what they call post-growth, post-traumatic stress growth. And I feel that if you confront this and you go into this pre-traumatic stress disorder, this anxiety, you grow, you grow. So that's the first thing, wake up. The second thing is talk about it. Talk about it and you will see that you're not alone. I mean, whenever I really manage to have a deep conversation with somebody, most people, most people suspect mm. that the situation is not as good as, as, as some newspapers or some politicians want us to, to believe. So talking about it, uh, ask for support. Eco-psychology is becoming a real, a real profession now. I mean, there are more and more psychologists who are specialized in things like solastalgia, you know, which is precisely this anxiety which is created by the, by the, by the perception that the things are not going well in the planet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the third thing I would propose is precisely, I mentioned before, deep adaptation, which is a movement which started in 2018, and I'm a member and I'm a facilitator there. And the basic uh, contention of deep adaptation is that near-term collapse is inevitable now, uh, and therefore we have to confront this fact. And what they propose is, is an agenda, a framework with four questions. I mean, they, they, we, I, I say they, but I'm part of them, so we propose four questions to frame the kind of inquiry and the, the kind of exploration that what we can do. The first one is resilience. What, when, when thinking about this predicament, what might happen to our societies in the coming years, what do we really want to keep? What is really important that we want to keep? And it's not only in terms of uh, food, shelter, security, et cetera, et cetera. It's also values and behaviors, dignity, uh, compassion, love. You know, what, how, how are we going to do in order to ensure that during and after collapse, we maintain a good level of those things which, which are fundamental for our human resilience? The second is for ours. So the, the first is resilience. The second is relinquishment. What do we need to let go of now, not to worsen the situation? You know, what are the things, the behaviors, the, 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 the habits that we have, which are making things worse and that we could already stop now? And I mentioned that I'm a vegan. If you research the impact that uh, industrial animal agriculture has, it's huge. We kill 70, million, 70 billion animals a year you know uh, i was reading the other day if we fed the soja and the cereals that we give to these cattle to humans we, we, we are able to feed 70 billion animals we would be able to feed 8 billion humans for sure so relinquishment you can relinquish meat you can relinquish flying you can relinquish the sense of security you can relinquish the idea that you're not going to die you can relinquish a number of things which are important mm. The third R is restoration. What can we bring back? Important things that we've lost over the last few decades, 
uh, you know, like, I mean, silly things or, or, or simple things like playing cards rather than video games, you know, talking to your neighbors, uh, uh, you know, and also re restoration also includes regeneration of nature. I mean, rewilding, etc. In, in there, a lot of included. And the fourth R is reconciliation. What do we need to make peace with? You know, who do we need to forgive? What do we need to embrace? And, and of course, the work with mortality, with our own mortality is a fundamental one. Embrace your shadow, embrace grief. And uh, if, I mean, this, this is a frame, you know, I repeat the, the four R's, just is resilience, relinquishment, restoration and reconciliation, but there is a lot of ground that you can explore. I've been exploring that for the last two years and I'm grown, you know, I'm, I'm, mm. and, and I'm okay. I'm okay. Mm. I'm not mm. depressed. Do I sound depressed? I'm not. Mm. You just, and of course, yeah. Uh, if I, I just want to ask you, you just mentioned your Zen retreat in Plum Village. So plays mindfulness a role in, on your path personally, or does that help? Or is it just, was that just by chance that you attended one retreat? Definitely. And let me give you a long-winded answer because you know you realize now that I like speaking probably too much. You know, my my path, my inner path actually started when I was eight. And I have a, a deep terror episode when I realized when, when in the class of religion I was told about the end of the world, apocalypse, the final judgment, etc. etc. And I realized that I was mortal, fair enough. But that after that came, you know, an afterlife. But before and in between, there was a judgment, you know. And if I was not good at the judgment, I could go to hell for eternity, which is long, especially towards the end, uh, as uh, as uh, Woody Allen used to say, you know. So I've been living with this sense of, of you know, I've, I've managed to, to befriend this terror because during my late childhood and early adolescence, I had this thing in my stomach. You know, this, this awareness that, that, you know, our life is, you know, there is a lot of illusion around that. So, uh, and since then, death and afterlife, afterlife have been very present in my life, you know, in my, in my reflections. And what I've been doing lately, you know, now that I have time since I retired, I'm, I'm, I've taken a journey of reconnection. And this is where mindfulness plays a big role. You know, it's a reconnection with myself with mindfulness. So re, I mean, I had forgotten that I had a body. Uh, I spent 33 years in the commission and I might as, might as well send only my head because that, that's, that's what was present in the commission. No, my body wasn't there, you know, and, and through mindfulness and through, through, through reconnecting with my sensations, with my emotions, with my thoughts, by observing them, by, 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 by befriending my, my, my breathing, et cetera, et cetera. I've, I've, I've connected with nature through my body, you know? So it's been incredible, the, the journey. And of course, in my retreats in Plum Village, where which the, 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 the place is so beautiful and so pity that it's closed now because of COVID. But I mean, I, I, it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, after my eight-week mm -hmm. course in, in 2014 or 2015, I went immediately to spend one week there and is there where I consolidated my practice. Definitely. But that's the connection with myself. Mindfulness has been useful for that. But I'm also trying to reconnect with others in a more authentic and deep way. And I've just, I'm exploring now a practice which is deep relating probably you know about it, where it is basically where you're having deep, deep encounters with mm. people, you know, mm. very deep, 
very deep by simply asking the question, being here with you, I notice. And the other person answers, hearing you say that, I notice. Something as simple as that with the previous practice of, of mindfulness can be very powerful. And of course, the third reconnection is with nature. You know, I spent hours and hours and hours in the woods and I've been exploring rites of passage, ceremonies, which are, are very important. But indeed, mindfulness helps a lot to reconnect with the senses and to, to relate with reality, not only through your thoughts, but mostly through your senses, which is where, mm -hmm. where you really relate mm -hmm. deeply. So maybe one of the last questions, there are many, many initiatives out there, you know, activists and like you work for the Transition Network and the work of Jim Bendo, and they all want to reduce harm and that people live in a more balanced way or a more sustainable way. Now, if we zoom out and look at these initiatives from an economic perspective, what type of economy does this approach work towards? You know, they all want to have a transition from economic growth to green growth, is that the way we have to work to, towards or any other way? Mm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let me qualify. Not all of them want to go from industrial growth to green growth. Mm. Some of them, and the most interesting ones, in my opinion, are into a post-growth kind of paradigm because it's the only, it's the only way. So what I see uh, as common patterns in this new economy, more balanced, is that they tend to be very local, very local. Uh, so they base their resilience in, in resources which are handy, you know. So basically they, 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 they uh, focus on the cake and import the cherry, whereas in our current society, <laughs> we, we import the cake rather than the cherry. Um, they are very respectful of the carrying capacity that I was mentioning before. You know, they are very respectful of, of you know, how much you extract, you know, and how do you recycle, et cetera, et cetera. And in a way, I'm sorry to be a bit hippie here. You know, uh, I'm going to say something which comes very much from my heart. I see that these economies uh, have an element of, they are sacred economies. You know, they are based on, Uh, full respect and love for nature. And let me share something that was very deep that I did the other day. In, uh, was in an exercise which was earth listening exercise where you do mindfulness and you connect with the place where you go and you listen to what the earth tells you in that place. And the message I got uh, from, from the land in the place where I was is that she is our mother. We made her sick. We sent her to the hospice to die, and we are using her pension. So unless and until we start rebuilding a love relation, falling in love really with nature, you could not do that to your mother, frankly. You could not do that to your children. The economy doesn't cover this, you know? This love, respect, reverence, for nature, because we are nature, you know? And of course, like, this sounds very hippie and some people are going to start rolling their eyes. This guy is on drugs or whatever. They can say whatever, but this is how I feel. And this is how indigenous cultures have established balanced relationships mm. with nature always. From, from before, you know, I, I'm reading a very interesting book, which is called uh, 14, 1491. 
So it's the, the year before the arrival of, uh, of uh, Columbus to, to America. And it describes populations which were healthy, harmonious, in ecosystems which were relatively, you know, very balanced, you know, and, and we arrived there and, yeah, we, we brought them smallpox and misery, basically. So examples, I see many examples of these kind of economies, you know, a typical or even stereotypical example is Bhutan with this, uh, mm. with this gross national happiness index. But I mean, I see the transition towns, I see eco-villages, and that may sound a bit like elitist. I'm interested, I'm curious to see what is going to happen in Amsterdam, where they are trying now the donut uh, economy model by the professor from Oxford, you know, Kate uh, Rowland, I think is her name, or Rowless or something like that. You know, so the idea to, to build the economy within the limits and the boundaries of, of mm -hmm. the planet. So, so to build an economy which, which meets the basic needs of the population, but it does it within the boundaries. So I'm, I'm curious about this model and apparently Amsterdam is ready to, to try it. So let's see, let's see how it goes. So we are about uh, to end this uh, podcast, but there's a delicate question at the end. So if you were the leader of Europe, Fernando, what would be the first step you would like to implement? If I was the leader of Europe, I would Google precautionary principle and read that very careful because in my view as i said science shows that breakdowns and collapse are more than probable but even if it were only possible i think the responsibility of the leaders in our countries or in europe could be to invest in adapting for that possibility. Maybe, maybe it could not be wasted money. You know, if, if we started preparing in order to, to, to help our populations to meet their basic needs, food, drink, shelter, safety, security, in case this possibility, which in my opinion is more than a possibility and even more than a probability, might turn a reality, you know? So I would, I could be, if I was the leader of Europe, and I, I, don't, I, I would never <laughs> go there. I prefer to be in the woods, frankly. Uh, I, I could, frankly, revise all my policies through the prism of the precautionary principle. Okay. So any last advice to our listeners from your side? Well, yes, as a way to wrap up, you know, one of the premises of the of the deep adaptation movement is, is that we should allow for a space to contemplate this possibility, this probability that uh, business as usual is no longer an option, and maybe reassess your life and your work under that prism. So mm -hmm. sim simply that, you know, allow yourself to contemplate that possibility. My opinion is a probability. And uh, tell yourself, who do I need to be in the face of this predicament? Hmm. Okay. So thank you so much, Fernando, for the time that you spent here. And um, I wish you all the best for your initiatives. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. 
When I reflect on the conversation with Fernando, I was impressed by his clarity and courage to look at reality as it is. His remarks on the poor state of the seven spheres of our planet made it clear that we as humanity have long been in a process that is heading towards a collapse. Nevertheless, how we relate to this reality is what will define the years to come. In this context, he points to a much-needed internal, individual and collective learning process. Mindfulness is one way to support this learning process by reconnecting to oneself. Without feeling ourselves, our mind, heart and body, it is difficult to relate to nature and see and feel both the beauty and the dying process at the same time. But we also need to let go of greed and our desire for everything to grow faster, bigger, further, higher. The principle of unlimited economic growth can only lead to collapse. Fernando observes that many new, more balanced economies are very local. And I like the way he referred to some of these local initiatives as sacred economies that are based on love and respect for nature. His message at the end to reflect on who we are, to contemplate on who do we need to be given the fact that business as usual is no longer possible, also sums up the first season of our Inner Green Deal podcast quite well. We would like to thank you, listeners, and look forward to continuing this journey and exploration in the coming year with you. For the next season, we will open up the podcast platform to new facilitators and guests. If you want to join our podcast team or be an occasional contributor, send us a message using the contact details in the podcast description. We would love to hear from you. Equally, as we are all volunteers, we would welcome financial donations to cover the costs and support the ongoing functioning of our podcast. Anyhow, we loved making this first podcast season and look forward to continue to explore together. Thanks to my dear colleague Jeroen Jans for this inspiring journey. Thanks to my dear colleague Jeroen Jans for this inspiring journey. My name is Liana Stefan. Thank you for listening and take care.